We're going to start off today with a little uh, little audience participation. So, what are the things that make your life awesome? Yeah. Go ahead. Don't be shy. Really? Your kids make... Who said that? Awesome! My kids! Great. Did I, did I look shocked? I didn't mean to look that shocked when someone said that as the first thing out the gate. I just was like, wow, trying to identify that. Who? What, what else? What makes your life awesome? Nature. Whoops. I can't spell nature. Friends. Was that the same voice that shouted food in the first service? Uh, yeah. What else? Time with God. Time with the Lord. Yeah. Heart? Did you say heart? Art. Thanks, Matt. And relationships. I heard that. Horses. Relationships with horses. I mean, horses. What else? Love. Worship. Oh my goodness. I'm normally... (laughs) Bagpipes. Can I get an amen? Oh yes. (laughs) What makes your life awesome? What are some of the things that make your life awesome? Okay. I'm trying. Diversity. University. No. What? There was one more. Weekends. I heard that, Carl. Um, where are I? Friends. Oops. Muslim friends. I love my Muslim friends. Okay, so we... And now I want us to do a little bit of a thought experiment. The good things in life. Okay, Val put adversity on there, which is going to kind of, you know, it's going to tip my thing a little bit here, Val, but that was good. So work with me. Like, how would you feel if you had to eliminate half of these things? So these are the things that make your life awesome, but you had to eliminate them. How would you feel? Sad, angry, grieved. What else over there? Oh, okay, so your trust would grow. Yeah. What else? How would you feel, Keith? Broken-hearted. Yeah. Disappointed. Despairing. Yeah. Yeah. Fragile. Now, 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 what if, due to unseen first circumstances that you had no control over, something came along and just, just wiped out all the rest, too? Now, how would you feel? How, how would you feel now? What would you do? How would you make sense of it? Where would you go? Who would you ask? The truth is, some of us actually know what this feels like. In fact, you might feel like that kind of describes your life right now. 
Some of us live in the stark fear of this happening. Like there's things in our lives we know bring us meaning, but we're afraid that we're going to lose them or lose that relationship or someone's going to die or we, we have a tremendous anxiety around it. Some of us, maybe we aren't sure that the life we have is that awesome. We'd like it to get better, but we sure wouldn't like to lose the things that do bring meaning and hope and purpose. I mean, what is the meaning of our lives when the things that give meaning to our lives are lost, are gone. More than a few people have asked that question. Maybe more than a few of us. How do we answer that? Well, welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church in the brand new series on the Book of Ruth. Aren't you feeling encouraged already? Aren't you thrilled to be here? Wow, this is, this is going to be great. What a depressing opener. We're launching into a new series for the next couple of months in this short story called Ruth. It's found in a collection of writings in the Old Testament. Um, and, and just to put it in this context, so in the Old Testament, there's the big five books that open it up. And that, those five books, they cover kind of creation right through to God's people who've been rescued out of Egypt, and they're right on the border of this new land that God has given them. And in those four, first five books, you have lots of the big stories, the story of Abraham and Moses and the flood and Joseph, and there's lots going on. There's a big exodus and, and all the, the plagues of Egypt. Great, great collection of stories. And then they're on this border into this new land. So that's the first five books. Then the next book, the book of Joshua, chronicles God's people being brought into the land that God had promised them, and all that God did for them to settle them in that land. Okay, that's Joshua. So big five, Joshua. Then there's the book of Judges, which you'll hear a little bit more about. And it tells the story between, you know, them kind of settling the territory and the rise of the kings. It's in between that. And in this time, uh, God led his people, and it was, it was quite a, a cycle, you'll hear about it, um, through the uh, raising up of, of Judges. Well, the story of Ruth in, in the Bible is found right after that story, but it's actually set within that same time. It's called the book of Ruth after one of the main characters, but it could just as easily be called uh, the book of Naomi. It's just as much about her and her family, maybe even a bit more actually, than it is about Ruth. But Ruth forms an incredibly central character. She's a mover and a shaker in this little story, and she uh, very justifiably gives the story its name. But the story is we we'll soon discover it starts off with this woman named Naomi. And it's the story of her family's tragedy and the surprising rescue of her family from annihilation. It's the story of a woman who's lost everything, everything that would give her life and purpose and meaning. It's all gone. For the next couple months, we're going to hear this story. And I think... I hope, discover through her story, through their story, that God really does use the unnoticed to accomplish the unimaginable. Even when there doesn't seem to be any hope, even when it seems like everything's ruined, like there is no way forward, that God does something amazing, even when we can't see it. Why is this important? Because I believe that sooner or later, we all are going to wonder what is happening to us. What is happening around us? What's going on in our family? What's going on in our world? And we'll wonder if there's still meaning, hope, a future. 
We struggle, we do struggle with feeling discouragement, feeling depression. We can feel hopeless. We can wonder where God is. We can wonder if there is a God anyway. We can wish for more out of life, but feel like we are stuck. And as much as we want to wish for it, it doesn't seem like it's going to get any better. And we can wonder if God, after all, is even able to use us where we are. I mean, maybe really it is all lost. Well, I'm convinced more, more than ever before that it's somehow in the mess of our lives that God creates his best futures for us. And so my hope is that through this story, we'll begin to see how some of that happens, even when we don't see it coming. So we're going to start at the tragic beginning of Naomi's story. There's an insert in your bulletin, uh, which has Ruth chapter 1 printed out for you. Uh, so that you can follow along, but also you can look in your Bibles. Like I said, it's the eighth book in the uh, Old Testament, and it's quite short, so you, you can miss it if you're flipping too fast. But let's, let's dive into the story. So it starts this way. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, this sets us up for what I already said. This is where the story is set, the time of the judges. Well, If you have had time to read the book of Judges, and I encourage you, you might want to do that this week, you discover quickly that this is a time of great turbulence. It's actually a a difficult, tragic time for God's people. It's characterized as a refrain that goes all the way through the story of the Judges, and here's the refrain. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is not a good thing. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Because there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. It's the the transition book to the rise of the kings. But this is the refrain. People are doing whatever they want to do to whoever they want to do it. And you see it played out again and again. It's a crazy story. There's hair-raising violence. There's, there's, There's stuff in there that you don't want your kids to read. It doesn't get included in all the kids' books. Like all the sanitized versions do, but not the real thing. If we were to make the book of Judges a movie right now, you wouldn't let your kids go to it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's a crazy story, and there it is in your Bibles. Idolatry, abuse, it's rampant among, among God's people. And there's this repeating cycle through the book where God's people would be serving God, worshiping him, doing what is right, loving each other, but then they forget about him. They start doing whatever they want, everything's right in their own eyes. They start worshiping other gods, they start abusing one another. And eventually, God tries to, you know, he warns them, tries to get them back. And eventually, like, like any good parent, he, he brings correction. He brings, he brings, he brings uh, you know, difficulty to try to get his people to wake up and come back to him. And it isn't until the point when they're really, you know, being suffering under terrible invaders or they're in big, big trouble that they finally do what? They turn and they cry out for deliverance. God answers in the book of Judges by sending a judge or a deliverer, people like Gideon, Samson, Deborah, to bring freedom and they're restored to right relationship with God and with each other for a while. And then the cycle just repeats. And frankly, if you look at the book of Judges, it just goes downhill. It's like a downhill spiral. The worst of the worst of the worst, because everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. This is the setting. This is the time that this story of Ruth comes out. That is the context. Well, so it's during the time of the judges, and then there's a severe famine that came upon the land. And shortages of food then, just like today, caused people to move, right? They've got to find food for their kids. They've got to find something that's going to make life work. And so 
a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Things are bad. Famine forces them to leave family and the familiar. I mean, the, the place they're from is called Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. So it'd, be kind of, it'd kind of become a little ironic. It was a house with no bread. The empty Bethlehem. You know what I'm saying? And so they came to the point where they were like, well, we've got to move. And so they go and live in a land with their historical enemies, the Moabites. They're displaced refugees. But... They're at least together, right? They're a family. And we all acknowledge that even though there's difficulties in life and there's job loss and there's struggles, at least you've got family by your side, right? Because if you've got family by your side, I mean, you could do anything, right? Can I get a cheer? Yeah, you've got family. Except it didn't quite work that way. Because then Elimelech died. We don't know how long this family was in the land of Moab before tragedy struck, but strike it did. And Naomi is left now with her two sons. Imagine this. It's a huge blow. This is a single mom living in a foreign country at a time and in a place where women were very vulnerable, where there was violence everywhere, and they needed the protection of a male of some kind. That's how their society worked. And in that ancient and we know violent society, women were either under the protection of a husband, a brother, a cousin, a father, or they were in deep, deep trouble. And Naomi is in deep trouble. Her only hope, we need to know this, we need to hear this as the story unfolds, her only hope was in her sons. That her sons would grow up and take care of her and continue the family line. That's her only hope. And so Naomi did her best by them. She then had to do what a father would normally have to do, negotiate marriages with other fathers in the area. And so Naomi stepped up to that challenge and she managed to find her sons some local Moabite women as wives. One of them is named Orpah and the other is named Ruth. But actually, this isn't nearly as good as it looks to us. You know, marrying her sons off to local girls is actually part of the tragedy of the story. Something that we, because of our cultural distance and our time and our sensitivities, we don't even realize that is part of the tragedy. You see, in the story of Naomi's people, Moabite women had a bad reputation. When Malin and Killian grew up, there was a favorite song played in the radio about four or five times a day. You know what that song was? Moabite women! Stay away from me, you know. It was, like, it was over and over again. It was like a tape. Those are bad girls. Stay away from them. They're pagan worshipers of Shemosh, who was a Moabite god who demanded child sacrifice. These are terrible people. And what's more, when Naomi's ancestors were coming out of Egypt, the Moabites gave them a lot of trouble. And it was Moabite women who were often featured in stories of God's people being seduced into idolatry. Yeah, great reputation. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, which is the last of the big five I mentioned, Moabite people were explicitly barred from membership in God's family to the tenth generation. In other words, please do not let these people in the door. These people were not meant to mix. But what can Naomi do? She's stuck in a foreign land as a widow. And so Naomi had to stoop 
to find Moabite women for her sons. This is the only chance of her family's preservation. And these Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, they were very likely not picks of the litter. You've got to get any thoughts of modern-day romance out of your head. These are marriages that were sought for economic advantage, for safety, for protection, for kids. This is not Malin locking the eyes of Ruth across the, you know, or, or this is not someone realizing, oh my goodness, there she is, the love of my life. None of that is going on here. These were arrangements made for the betterment of the family. But think about this. What Moabite father would have looked at the widow Naomi and her sons and thought, oh yeah, 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 this will really bring betterment to my family. You know, this will really improve the prospects for my future. Not a chance. Landless, penniless, husbandless, refugees. The only economic advantage would have been getting rid of some hungry mouths that you had to feed. Offloading liabilities in a culture who would have seen women as baby machines. It's very likely that Ruth and Orpah were the last of many children, daughters who were married off, but in this case, nobody wanted to marry them. These are unwanted daughters. And now they get married off to some poor refugees. There's actually shame on both sides of this that Naomi's family would have fallen so far to marry a Moabite. And then Ruth and Orpah's families that they would think so little of their daughters that they just marry them off into poverty like that. It's part of the tragedy. But at least these women could bear Naomi some grandkids, right? I mean, this is the point after all in this culture. Sons are your life insurance policies. And thankfully, Naomi, in spite of her husband's death, she's got two life insurance policies. Two sons to guarantee her future and the future of her family. You can kind of feel her breathe a sigh of relief. In spite of how bad life has turned out, there's still hope. Yes, it's bad that they had to marry Moabites. But at least some kids can come. They'll carry the family line and name. And and, and, and really, when you... It's all about that. It's all about the family line. You getting that? This is, you got to hear this as you go through the story. Except that they don't come. Kids, they don't come. Ten years pass. Ten years. And neither of these women are having kids. Something's wrong. Month after month. Year after year. And for whatever reason, Ruth and Orpah aren't getting pregnant. And for anyone who's struggled with infertility, as I know some of you have, and we had that struggle in our family, You know how tragic that is, how gut-wrenching, how searingly painful to have no kids, no kids, no kids, no kids. Maybe some miscarriages sprinkled in there. No kids, no kids, no kids. And then add on top of that, the pressure, the expectation, the people looking at you, touching your belly, asking you questions. When are you going to start a family? And then in that culture, looking at you like, come on, man, the whole family line depends on you getting pregnant. What's your problem? Can you sense the desperation that might have been mounting in this family? And just when you think it cannot get possibly any worse, I mean, think about it. Husband dead, refugees, poor, sons married off to Moabite women. It cannot get any worse, you think. But then it does. Because 10 years into this child, these childless marriages, both sons die. Malin and Killian, dead. Leaving Naomi alone without sons, without her husband. 
It's unbelievable. It's a tragic, incredible loss right here at the beginning of the story. Right within three verses, all the male characters, like all the ones you expected, they get named. They're right at the start of the story. All the ones you expect who are going to make things happen, the ones who are going to provide and protect, they're just removed from the story. It's like walking into a Marvel movie, and in the opening credits, they kill all the heroes. And the only ones left are people standing around saying, I don't know what to do. I don't have any superpowers. How am I going to deal with this problem? I have no idea. All the heroes, gone. All is lost. Everything is ruined. Naomi's been stripped bare. She has no home, no food, no security, no husband, no sons, no grandsons, no future. Literally, it signals the termination of her family line and the end of her identity as a woman, as a mother. She is adrift. She is empty. She is ruined. There's no future left. Imagine how bleak that would have been. Just think about that for a moment. How bleak. How awful. So what now? How does she respond? How does she interpret what's happened to her family? Well, let me ask you. How would you respond if something like that happened in your life? What would you say? What would you do? Or perhaps for some of us, we can see, we can hear some of our story in Naomi's tragic beginning. Maybe the details are different. I certainly hope so. But, but, but maybe you can feel an affinity for her loss. That you know what it's like to feel like you're constantly out of place. Or that you've been forgotten. You know what it feels like to be bereft, to be so deeply disappointed in life. That the life you thought you would have You're now facing your 40s and 50s and 60s and you're thinking, this is not the life I'd hoped for. Nothing even close. Maybe you've had experiences that have stripped away your purpose, your identity. Maybe you've experienced the death of someone close to you and you know what it's like to wake up in the morning and the very first thing you feel is the ache of their loss. They're no longer with you and you feel it and you carry it. Maybe your spouse hasn't died, but your marriage has, and you're kind of hoping they'll soon go too. Did I just say that out loud? Some of you have thought it. Maybe altogether too real for you, the the searingly painful story of infertility, where you've hoped and prayed and screamed and wept for a child to come, and there's just been nothing month after month after month. Maybe you still have food in the fridge, but your financial situation just seems to be increasingly hopeless. Or perhaps the food in your fridge just doesn't taste like food anymore because your struggle with depression just gets darker and darker. Maybe you go to school hoping that you'll be noticed or included, even by a small group of friends. Some of them will notice you. Some of them will take interest in you. But you always feel like an outsider. You feel like the weird kid. Who wants to feel like the weird kid? Nobody. Or maybe then you then go home and don't seem to fit there either. Maybe you know what it's like to have grown up in a home where you weren't really that valued. You weren't really that wanted. Or perhaps you immediately think of a relationship that's been lost, a relationship with a child, with a brother, with a friend. Something has happened and you're estranged from them and you don't know how to make it right. Or it could be that you, in spite of all kind of the obvious signs. People would look at your life and think, well, they have it all together. Somehow you feel numb. Somehow you feel alone. 
feel like no one really understands or sees you. So maybe it is that you and I could relate in some way to what Naomi is experiencing here. The displacement, depression, grief, and the loss. Maybe more than we even realize. Well, how does Naomi respond? We all have filters, right, through which we interpret events that happen to us and around us. So, so what's Naomi's filter? How does she interpret what she's experienced? In a very, very specific way. Naomi interprets her tragedy as evidence that God has turned against her. She has no doubts about it. God is against me. In her words, the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. A little further down the story, when Naomi is actively pushing away her daughters-in-law, telling them to go home and hope for a different husband, she says these words, Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. In other words, yeah, it's bad for you, but you grew up with a God who is vicious and weird. You don't expect good things from him. I'm a follower of Yahweh. And if you're not a follower of Yahweh, you wouldn't understand what it's like to have the God who's supposed to be good to you, who's promised to be faithful, who's promised to bring his people out of famine and harm. You, you, you don't know what it's like to have that God pull the rug out from under your feet. It's like for those of us who are here at the Erickson Covenant Church, and I'm so thrilled you are, who haven't yet decided what you think about God. You're not even sure God exists. You're certainly not sure of, you know, who God is. Well, it's a little hard to have God, um, you know, dash your expectations if you aren't even sure he's good yet or not. But what about Christians who say, oh, we believe that God is love. We believe that God is always good and that he, that he pours out blessing and favor on members of his family. What then when everything goes wrong? How do you interpret that? Naomi faithfully and firmly believed in the Lord, in, in Yahweh, the personal name. Whenever you see, I'm just doing a little side note here. In your text, in your Bible, you see a word, the word Lord with all caps. It's just the word Yahweh. It's the personal name of God, but they wouldn't print that out of respect for the word. So whenever you see the word Lord, all caps, it means Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. Sometimes I'll use them interchangeably. But she believes in Yahweh, but based on what's happened to her life, her perspective has radically shifted. This is her perspective now. Yahweh, the divine rescuer of my people, has now become Yahweh, the divine enemy of my family. That's what she thinks. When Naomi does eventually return to her hometown, people are amazed at what she looks like how reduced and decimated she's become. It's like she's a shadow of her former self. Is it really Naomi, people asked? It's like her grief and her hardship and her loss have changed her whole look. She's now gone gray and gaunt and ground down. Don't call me Naomi, she says. You know why she says that? The word Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Lord Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, by which she means husbands and kids. She doesn't mean food, obviously. They were hungry. But I went away full. I had husbands and kids. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi? 
when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. Wow. What a response. Listen to what Naomi's saying here. Not only has the Lord raised his fist against me, the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. He's brought me back empty. He's caused me to suffer. He sent this tragedy upon me. Naomi has a very specific interpretation of her pain and her loss. God is against me. Who does this remind you of? Well, it reminds me, first of all, of someone else in the Bible who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Reminds me of Jesus. But closer in, of course, it reminds us of Job, the famous sufferer Job. Featured in a long poetic book in the Old Testament, he suffers incredible devastation too. All his possessions are taken away. All his kids are killed. And then, to make matters really fun, he is afflicted with this weird body disease where his whole body breaks out in sores. In spite of his wife's urging and his friend's rebukes, Job maintains that God is the culprit, that he, Job, has done nothing wrong. Job's interpretation is very similar to Naomi's. Listen to these words from Job 16. They're powerful. I was living quietly until he, God, shattered me. He took me by the neck and broke me in pieces. Then he set me up as his target. And now his archers surround me. His arrows pierce me without mercy. The ground is wet with my blood. Again and again, he smashes against me, charging at me like a warrior. I wear burlap to show my grief. My pride lies in the dust. My eyes are red with weeping. Dark shadows circle my eyes. Yet I have done no wrong. And my prayer is pure. And what about a little further on where Job sounds just like Naomi when he says, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty, who has made my life bitter. Both of them had their lives ruined. And they both blame God for it. For many years, though, people have heard Job and Naomi differently. Whereas Job was upheld as voicing just complaint, Naomi was put down as just complaining. You hear the difference there? No, Job gives just complaint. We look at his life and say, yes, he's worthy and just to complain this way. But Naomi, she's just complaining. But Naomi's not just complaining. She is voicing her deep distress, her pain, her sorrow, the overwhelming feeling that Yahweh, who's supposed to be good, who's supposed to be faithful, who seems willing to be good to other people, has decided to make her life bitter and difficult. It doesn't make sense. And in many ways, Naomi is worse than Job because Job still has a spouse. But Naomi doesn't. Her husband's dead. And to put a very fine point on it, Job's a man. Naomi's a woman. And in that culture, that is a huge difference. But the truth is, the story of Job and the, truth, and the story of Naomi, they speak with one voice of God's crushing abandonment. 
And how she interprets her demise is very simple. Yahweh has turned against me and has ruined my life. Naomi didn't stop believing in God. She just stopped believing that God was good for her and her family. That his steadfast love would still somehow be at work in her story. She had given that up. In verse 8, a little later, she prays blessing on her, prays God's blessing on her daughters-in-law that they'll find new husbands and, and go on with their lives. But didn't pray that for herself. Not anymore. She's given up. God has turned against her. And I can see why she feels that, can't you? And isn't this what it looks like, that God has just decided to mess me up and leave me helpless? God's just given me over to the wolves? She thinks that's what God has done. What do you think? Well, that's the story we're going to explore. That's the story of Ruth and Naomi and eventually Boaz. And why would we do that? Because there are many people, I think a number of us, who have felt like God has forgotten them. God has forgotten you. And while you might not be as bold and as articulate as Naomi, you might not be willing yet to say God is against you, you feel like your life is no longer significant. That it's no longer filled with meaning and purpose and life and hope. That you're you're sort of stuck where you are and you guess you just got to accept that God isn't really going to do anything in your life anymore and there's not really anything that I can do about it. I I guess I might as well just sort of live it out and have some fun along the way and do the best I can that this is all I'm ever going to get. It's all I'm ever going to be good for. And that feeling can be very real for many of us. Or there might be people around us, people in your workplace, people at school, people in your family, maybe in your own household, who also feel like God has abandoned them. And you're wondering, how do I help them? Like, how do I walk with them? How do I encourage them without being trite? How do I get alongside them? And this story, too, holds an answer. Not a quick fix, but an answer to that as well. But before we move too quickly to hope, because we have a tendency to do that, right? Whenever there's something bad, we very quickly want to just kind of glaze it over with some happy, happy, joy, joy Christianism, and then move on to the good stuff. We too quickly can move past the pain. But before we do that, we need to ask ourselves something important. Are we able to admit when we're really discouraged with life? Are we able to voice our disappointment with God? To share with them from deep inside why you're angry or upset? Why you feel dead or alone? Are we able to voice that to him? Are we able to cry out at the injustice of it, the hopelessness of it, why life doesn't seem fair, the the grief or the loss that we've experienced? Are we really able to voice that? And are we able to hear it in others? Or do we kind of pull away from that because it's too raw, too fresh, too weird? We pull away from the cries of pain that we hear in others. We try to minimize it maybe. Deny it times cover over it or are we willing to lean in to those who are voicing the pain around us is there a place in our hearts and in our lives in our families and in us as a church in our community for people to really lament the losses and the griefs the ache 
Life is full of grief. We know that. Sorrow, struggle. Some of us, and I know some of your stories, some of us have dealt with more heartache and loss and grief than anyone should ever have have experienced, and I know that. Are we able to admit that? Are we able to hear that as a community? Because I think we need to be able to voice it. I think it's critical that we voice these things honestly and openly and hear them as they're voiced in others. And Naomi helps us do that. Because unless we are willing to give voice to our pain, I don't think we're willing, we'll be able to really hear the voice of hope. I, I, I think unless we're really able to acknowledge those raw places where we feel like we've been abandoned, we may never be able to hear or know or see how God is present even in the mess. And so as we close this first message today, I want to invite you further into the story. Really, this is an introductory session. We're just getting into the story. And so really my invitation is, would you journey together with us in this story of Ruth? But I do want to ask how we can respond practically today. So the first one is there. That's it. That we would actually listen to this story. You would take this week and you take the, the book of Ruth, which is very short. You can read it on your coffee break or listen to it on audio. That You would take this story and you would take it in. You would listen to it. And for bonus points, read the book of Judges too. Because that really sets the context. But, but, but listen to the story of Ruth. Listen to it. Hear it. Maybe you want to ask yourself, how was Naomi's pain real? And yet, without minimizing her pain, how is her perspective also limited? How is her pain real, but how is her perspective limited? But listen to the story. Engage the story. The second one is I, I invite you to think this, this thought, this question. How do you respond? Like, what is your filter when tragedy strikes? How do you respond when difficulty occurs in your life? How do you interpret that? What are your filters? Are you able to be honest with God about your feelings of disappointment? The feeling that this should not be. I've been faithful. How come this is happening to me? I've done things right. and Look at it all fall down. Are you able to express that? Are you able to, 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 to say that? Which gives me, leads me to my third one, which is, are we able to voice it? Our own disappointment. Our own struggle. I think it's critical, and I think listening to this story is going to help us do that. You know, I have not hidden from you. In fact, it's right in my AGM report there that I've just come through a pretty, or really it's probably still in a, a fairly difficult season. So in the fall, I, I went and, and started some counseling. And uh, it was really trauma counseling in many ways. So the counseling was a, a number of sessions at, with a counselor. And, and uh, we walked through places in my life where, I'll be honest, I was never willing to admit there was even a problem. There was no tragedy there. No trauma, no difficulty. Which another counselor about a year before had said, buddy, you've you got to start admitting that there's been some things go wrong in your life or you're going you're gonna, you're gonna to go wrong in your life. You know? so, okay, so, um, so I'm dealing with these tragedies and these traumas and I'm finally acknowledging things that I had covered over, ignored, pushed away, tried to whatever, put the happy face on forever, but it was starting to shut me down. And so as we worked through these things, starting to acknowledge Started to, I was surprised at the level of depth and feeling and anger and sorrow that came as I examined some of these losses 
in my life. But I'm convinced that it was only in voicing these losses that I was able to then begin to receive healing in my life. It's critical that we voice it. And then, of course, I encourage you to be ready to hear that we would be a community, that we'd be friends, brothers and sisters, who are willing to hear others as they voice their pain. Not to try, not diminish it, not to try to make it feel all better all the time and immediately jump in and try to fix, but to be willing to hear it. Now, I do think there is a right response to others' pain. In fact, I think through the story of Ruth, we're going to hear what that response looks like. But for now, I challenge you to be open to just hearing it. You know, Naomi felt all alone. She felt abandoned. She felt forgotten. Life was over. What she did not know, what she could not have possibly known, was that God was actually doing something greater than she could ever have imagined. Something that would only come into her life after this incredible time of devastation. And while she would experience a tiny piece of it, what God was truly doing through her would only be fully realized generations later. As you'll see when you read the story, spoiler alert, it's through Naomi and Ruth and Boaz that King David comes. The solution to the problem in Judges, as the story rolls. But more ultimately than that, it's through this family line that Jesus comes. This is the story of the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus. On the human side. Jesus, the unique and one only son of God, came to us and he was not sheltered from grief. He was not sheltered from loss. He was not sheltered from devastation. He came and he was ruined on our behalf. We read about this in the New Testament and the Old. In Isaiah chapter 53, which prophesies about Jesus, we read things like he was despised and rejected, a man of suffering. He bore our suffering. He We considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted, crushed for our iniquities, cut off from the land of the living. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. What Naomi could not see was that her emptying devastation would create the very circumstances through which Jesus himself would come and be emptied and be devastated for us. And that it was through his emptying, through his devastation, that we could finally be restored to fullness. God was doing that through her. But that was way in the future. There's no way she could really have known that. At this point in her story, she feels abandoned. She feels alone. She feels forgotten. But was she? Was she truly abandoned? Because even in that first chapter... And we're going to come back to the first chapter next week to look at this more fully. But even in this first chapter, God is still at work in a way that Naomi has yet to realize. Because in spite of her loss and her grief and her depression and her bitterness, there is actually someone who has not abandoned her. It happens to be her pagan, yet so faithful, daughter-in-law, Ruth. Naomi may not have been able to see it, May not have been able to appreciate it for what it was or know what God was going to do. But God was going to use this one relationship with this young, unwanted, Moabite woman who gave herself in self-sacrificing love to Naomi. God was going to use her to reveal his goodness and to shift the destinies 
of us all. Let's pray. Jesus, this is amazing to know that you bring the mess of our lives somehow into perspective because you, through that mess, can bring freedom, life, grace, hope. And for each one of us, Lord, in different places and circumstances in our life, some of us, we've really struggled with the feeling that all seems to be lost. We aren't sure what life's about. And I I pray specifically for those among us who feel like they're on that raw edge, feeling abandoned, feeling alone, feeling discouraged, feeling like everything's being taken away, wondering if there's any use going on living, any use that you have for them. I pray very specifically that you would, through this story, awaken them, awaken us to your presence in the midst of the pain, to your commitment to walk through that with us. And for us as a community, I pray that we'd be more open to voices of pain and struggle, more open to hear people as they, as they voice their disappointment and their discouragement, and that together we would learn through this amazing story, what it means to lean into that. What it means to love into that. I pray that we would continue to respond to you as we see this story unfold. I pray that you would send us today by your Holy Spirit. That you would send us with this invitation in our, in our minds, in our hearts to, to hear this story, to to voice pain, to think about how we, how we interpret these things and to, and, to, and to listen to others as they do. And I pray, I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us as a community that would be ever more open to the hope that we have in you. Would you send us today your grace and your power? In your name we pray. Amen.